Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, what's the point behind the IT dashboard and the data your agency feeds it? Am I doing something only because OMB is asking for it, right? This is the difference between compliance and really managing. Keeping budget planning on track when surprises come your way. Something like the war can really turn uh, things upside down in terms of what you anticipated being the center of gravity for the budget and the, and the priorities can really shift. And Army Futures Command looking everywhere for the tech it needs. We are, of course, looking for any technologies that would uh, support our technological gaps. Uh, we're looking for, within these various university research labs, fairly advanced and mature technologies that we could quickly transition to our warfighters through our development centers. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Department of Veterans Affairs and the contractor building its electronic health records program will perform what the VA calls a full root cause analysis on a system outage. A VA spokesperson tells FedScoop a soft Software bug caused the system to mix up patient records. The outage caused the records mix-up at the test site at Mann Grand Staff Medical Center in Washington and four other locations in the Northwest. Contractors are getting some breathing room on price increases. Inflation's causing them. A new memo from the senior procurement executive in the Office of Acquisition Policy at the General Services Administration, Jeff Kosas, puts a hold on price increase limitations. The memo includes four pricing flexibilities for contractors. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming April 14th at the ritz Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new federal IT dashboard from the General Services Administration is up and running. The agency says itdashboard.gov tracks more than 7,000 IT projects. Karen Evans is partner at KENT Partners. She's former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget and former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Karen, welcome. Thanks for coming on. You told me before we started that you've been poking around itdashboard.gov. What do you see there now? What do you think of the revamp? Welcome. Well, first of all, thank you for having me um, on here. As soon as I saw that, I said, oh, this is going to be interesting. And so I just jumped out there right away to take a look at it because it hasn't been updated. It said in 12 years. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's about right. And so, um, I, you know, aesthetically, it looks really good. The organization of it looks really good. The challenge with it is still always the data that is provided by the agencies. And so right up front, there's a caveat, right? Like there's an asterisk with italics and says, uh, data provided by the agencies. Um, and, and I know when I had to testify a lot of times and you're, you're asking, you're being asked about these questions, it's, it's always, well, this is data as reported by the agency. And so um, toward the end, and I hope this administration picks it up because they've kept the investments and, and the transparency of the data was the uh, reliability of the data. We were going down the path to be able to statistically prove that you could rely on the results of the data. Right. And so there's there are ways that we started um, during the end of the Bush administration working with Gallup to say, OK, how can you sample 
this, these data sets to then say, yeah, they have a good process in place, you know, beyond what GAO does. GAO already knows, right? And so it, I know you'll ask, I mean, I would ask, <laughs> um, you know, who uses this data the most? And, and it's primarily oversight, right? Like IGs or GAO when they're looking at specific things. And when you look at the overall statistics, which if you poked around yeah. and you looked at it, things look pretty good, right? Like it's only about 4% of the investments are high risk investments. And then you look at all the GAO reports or the IG reports and you're kind of like, okay, how can only three or 4% of the investments be high risk investments? And over 95%, I think it was over 95% um, were on schedule, right? So they were, they were meeting cost schedule and performance. That's a phenomenal record. If you just look at the data and then you start reading all these oversight reports and, and you're like, okay, where's the disconnect coming from? Where do we think the disconnect is coming from though? I mean, what you're getting at is exactly the core problem that we're up against because if the information on the dashboard is not good what's the point of the dashboard so i number one i think the point of the dashboard is good um when it's embraced by management right and so um and and that's the congressional intent that you see with legislation like uh, the FATARA or giving CIOs the ability to manage the budget and look at the, and you're, you're also seeing this, right? Like with the um, TMF funding, the modernization funding, right? And you have to bring these two together, but this is like really inside baseball, anybody who really analyzes this, right? So like you got the auditors and you have OMB and those of us who set this up. So you could probably have the same discussion with Tim Young over at Deloitte because he probably has already looked at it. Wait, I'm well. going to write that down. I'm yeah, you should you should ask him right because he's probably doing the same thing that i'm doing because those of us who had dived down into this like you know inside baseball and so i was trying to put myself in your place saying hey if i wanted to look up or if i'm a vendor right and i want to develop a business development plan and i want to look to see how to help an agency um, with a roadmap, like it has EIS data up there, which is really great, right? So EIS data is the transition to the contracts, uh, looking at networks, OMB has these memos out there now to get to zero-based architecture to say, to look at your network um, and you should be providing it as you're the internet. Well, if you look at the EIS contracts, you can actually then start seeing, okay, these by components are how the agencies are transitioning, right? Um, EIS really shouldn't be a circuit for circuit transition. That's what I keep trying to tell everybody. This is your opportunity to use those network providers to re-engineer your network, to get to the zero trust mindset, architecture, what kind of services do I really need? And then map it up with the investments. But you know, we're talking about portfolio management. I mean, it really is portfolio management. And um, and unless OMB is the bad guy, and I know this sounds terrible, but, um, and maybe I enjoyed it too much when I was in there. Oh, I don't oh know, not maybe, not maybe, Karen. <laughs> There's no maybe about that. Go ahead. Well, 
Um, you have to really follow through on this, right? And the budget examiners, um, this is a partnership between the CIO, the management side, and the budget side, because one is planning, one is execution. And you have to bring those two together. And that's part of what this data is supposed to help you with, plus the oversight, congressional oversight, plus then getting vendors to have insight into what does that portfolio look like for that department or agency. But when you dive down into the data, like it's really inside baseball. Like you have to know what these investments are called. Right. Like you have to know how CBP at DHS broke things out so that, you know, that uh, things that they're doing to upgrade technology at the border is called X. And and that's not an easy thing, especially when I started like looking at the CVS files. It's the summary file. So you have to really then go down even further. So. Um, I, I mean, the data is there. It's like, how to use it? And then what is the indicators of, is it a broken process within the department? Um, is OMB really not using it anymore? So why do you have the agencies doing it? And is the only group really using a GAO? So I wonder too, how comprehensive the data really is. And the reason that I ask that did an event yesterday for FCA Bethesda, kind of a tribute to Maria wrote for her departure uh, on Thursday. And we're going to have a highlight of that, by the way, on the Friday daily scoop podcast, me and Maria, but she talked about the importance of, uh, of TBM technology business management to understand where all of the technology spending is going. And when tech is integrated into a program where the program is budget line, you get the idea. So I wonder if that data is going to the dashboard and if that data is not going to the dashboard, then that's another reason why what we're seeing on the dashboard is not a complete picture of all of the IT spending across government. Am I on, am I thinking about it the right way? Yes, absolutely. And that was um, when I was at DHS, that was one of the pieces that the CIO shop was working on was the integration into the TBM piece to really get that insight, right? Like those of us who have been working this for years know that that's the case. Every part, and that's exactly what I was looking at, which is really inside baseball, where these codes, like if you look at it, there's little codes there, right? Those codes are supposed to match up to what is um, in OMB Max. And so, you know, those end up being specific codes that you're supposed to be able to match up the technology investment, right? with um, the program it's supporting. So that's exactly what Marie is talking about because there isn't a program today that gets implemented without some kind of technology. I mean, I, I can remember, I'll give you an example. When I was the DOE CIO and we first started, OMB was first pushing out these business cases. I looked at this one component. I won't really share the specific name of the component, but also turned in was a business case for their land, right? That just the internal network. Okay, these guys had major investments that were trying to beat the world in supercomputing. Like, you know, DOE's all about, and I'm like, okay, how can you not think that that's a not a major investment. Oh, that's program dollars. And then the answer also was it's incidental to the contract. And I said, nothing is incidental to the contract. But um, 
you know, unless the rigor is put on top of that, and that's what Marie is really talking about, then it's subject to interpretation. And, and again, am I doing something only because OMB is asking for it, right? This is the difference between compliance and really managing, right? And so I think when we start looking at some of the discrepancies in the data, you have a, uh, a major compliance exercise going on versus the secretary of DHS really looking at this information cohesively, like what Marie is saying, when they have to make uh, budget decisions and recommendations into the OMB director. Karen Evans, it's always great to talk to you. I love the insidest of inside baseball. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. You can tell I still get excited about budget information. You can read more about the new IT dashboard in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. Tomorrow is Maria Rote's last day as Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer. On Friday's show, an exclusive one-on-one with Maria. She and I will recap her career and look ahead at what she would like to see happen in government IT in the future. That show debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The White House's budget request for fiscal 2023 is coming this Monday. The Office of Management and Budget has said the request will show how the administration wants to fund the president's management agenda, among other priorities. Danny Werfel runs the government practice at the Boston Consulting Group. He's former controller at the Office of Management and Budget, and he's co-host of FedScoop's Gov Actually podcast. Danny, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the significance outside of OMB for the budget drop that's coming on Monday? Day. Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Well, you know, um, it's it's a big day for a lot of people that uh, put in a, a long amount of effort. Uh, the president's budget to produce is not a, a simple task. Um, and uh, for the folks over at, at OMB, it's a culmination of, of many months of work, but also the um, Many uh, federal employees around government at federal agencies uh, start the process, develop the the budget request that goes to OMB, um, and basically have a huge role and stake in what that final budget budget looks like. So um, it's an important day where you know it's a, it's later than we typically see a budget come out. We typically see the budget come out um, in in early February, but. That's the thing about the federal government and the budget process. You know, it's it's fairly uh, uh, flexible uh, as different things uh, come up. But I think the most important element of the president's budget coming out is that it unifies the government around the president's policies, right? Before the budget comes out, there's a little bit more ambiguity in terms of what are the president's policies. You get you get you get some certainty in the State of the Union. Start to kind of flesh out what the priorities are, but the budget itself is the president's policies, and it's like a one-stop shop for you to understand: is this in the president's policy or outside the president's policy? And I think that makes this one maybe the most significant one of this administration so far, because given what you've taught me before about how the budget cycle works, this will be the first budget request that's been 
undertaken completely during the Biden administration, right? There are the last ones there have been at least residual influences from the Trump administration. This is really the Biden administration's first budget request. Is that a fair observation on my part? Well, the one that's certainly gone through the full, yes. the full cycle, because, yes. because last year at this time, um, uh, President Biden and his team had only been in place since January. And as you know, as, as I alluded to, the budget takes months and months and months to develop. You know, it, it starts. Um, you know, you you could really kind of point to earlier points in the process, but for argument's sake, let's say it really starts in the summer, as the uh, so 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 last summer, as federal agencies started to put together their their budget request to meet a September deadline for it to go to OMB. And then as OMB takes in all of these various agency budget requests, it starts a back and forth between OMB and the federal agencies to calibrate and land on the final numbers, the final policies, the final language. And um, and through the fall and now through part of, of the winter, you're you're finally getting the, the, the final document. So you're right. This is the first Biden budget that's had all of that build up and foundation. So, yeah, I would say it's the first full comprehensive statement of President Biden's policies and priorities. Given that, where will you go first when the budget drops, Danny? What will you look at first as an indicator of the policy uh, things that you just described? Yeah, I mean, I typically will go to to, to the uh, you know the, the opening set of pages to see what the big themes are. Um, is it domestic policy? Is it national security? Um, you know, I I I, I kind of funnel down, right? So I start with it's always good to get a picture of what's on the 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 administration, the government's mind as the biggest thing they're trying to tackle. Is it post-pandemic issues? Is it the war in Ukraine? Is it climate change? Are they dealing with all of these things kind of equally? Or are they really setting out something as the major focus area that the administration is going to take going forward? And then, so I start there and then I start to kind of go to the next tiers. I'm curious to see like, how important is cybersecurity in this budget as an example? Um, versus immigration reform versus, you know, you start to kind of start to kind of get a sense of in interacting with this uh, administration, where are their priorities aligning from the biggest ticket items, the most important things down to things that are really more interesting for me personally in my job and career, the management stuff. So, so I'll probably spend the most time in the, in the president's management agenda section I get really curious to see how different administrations describe success to date, the challenge, the ambition. And, um, and in particular right now, I'm particularly interested in what an administration says about the government workforce because, and, and what its policies are. Because I think if I, you know, if I were to take a step back and say, what are, is the biggest challenge that the government has today, not from a policy standpoint, but from the health of the government, it's it's its people. And, you know, and how are we when the rest of the country is dealing with a labor shortage and you've got all these various issues, how is the government uh, planning to make sure that there's 
uh, the right people in the right jobs to make the government work effectively. When you have a document like this that the government's been working on various places and various stages since last summer, as you just described it, how do you pivot so quickly when something like Ukraine happens that it can potentially be reflected next Monday? Yeah, I mean, this is the, you know, I like to say stuff like that is in the brochure, right? You know, it's <laughs> like that that you have to be prepared and let's just say keep certain fields unlocked as long as you can keep them unlocked uh, because uh, because you never know uh, what might what might hit. Um, you know, the, the 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 apparatus of the government's budget process has ways for dealing with exigencies that are outside of this long drawn out budget cycle, supplementals, emergency appropriations. So if the budget kind of misses the mark because of uh, something big happens, um, you know, you can you can scramble pretty quickly uh, with uh, things that are outside of the numbers without disrupting all the numbers you spent so many so much time calibrating. But, yeah, I mean, something like the war can really turn uh, things upside down in terms of what you anticipating being the center of gravity for the budget and the and the priorities can really shift like a pandemic or a war uh, certainly can do that. Well, or inflation, too. I mean, the the inflation numbers that we're seeing, certainly we were were not anticipating last summer and figuring that into as minutely as finely as individual contracts where uh, companies are finding that they're no longer making money by providing the service or product at the price that they agreed to, that kind of thing. So there's all kinds of fluidity here that makes this process probably a lot more complicated than it appears on the surface. And it certainly doesn't appear simple on the surface. Well, and now you're you're getting into a really interesting element of the president's budget, which like kind of gets down a little bit more in the weeds, but is critically important as well as what are the economic assumptions that are at play that are describing what the public should expect in terms of money coming into the government and money going out of the government, right? And so, you know, what are the assumptions around these macroeconomic factors that really affect the health of of government finance and public finance? Um, And yeah, I mean, I would, you know, we are in a a really unusual moment in, uh, in our economy where you have a lot of factors going, you know, you've got, you know, most recently lower uh, unemployment, but you have inflation, you have, you know, big questions around the new world uh, post pandemic, you know, what is the solvency of, of mass transit systems, there's all these, you know, what, what is what is the economic impact on city centers, uh, if we don't come back to full uh, commutes, all, all these different questions are lurking. And now you've got a war uh, with an already pre, we already had a disrupted supply chain because of COVID, you know, massive, massive question. So an interesting question that an economist or someone who's like thinking in those terms might go see is how are the government economists um, drawing a line through all this scatter plot to figure out where the, where they think the economy is going in the middle of this incredible uncertainty. That's a really interesting read as well. All right. So I appreciate the roadmap of what to look for when this budget rolls out, Danny. It's great to talk to you as always. Absolutely, Francis. Anytime.
You can read more about the budget request release in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Decision makers from the Navy, the Jake Office at DOD, the State Department, and more agencies are coming to the Government Forum 2022. It'll be at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, April 19th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Army Futures Command will collaborate with research universities in Texas to drive innovation across the service. One of them is University of Texas at Austin's UT Robotics Center of Excellence. Patrick Bedar is University Technology Development Division Director at Army Futures Command. Patrick, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I don't mean to uh, give preferential treatment to UT at Austin. I chose it just because it said robotics in the title. What are some of the technologies that are covered in the partnerships that you're developing with academia in Texas? Welcome. Well, thank you for the uh, invite, Mr. Rose, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity to talk about uh, the UTDD program. Uh, you know, I want to state up front that uh, the UTDD uh, is not just about UT Austin. It includes partnerships uh, with the University of Texas Systems and all the affiliate organizations within UT uh, Systems, as well as Texas A&M Systems. What drives us to the technologies that we are looking for really is the modernization priority set forth by um, our Army Secretary and, and our Army leadership. And within that or from that, uh, the Army uh, Futures Command looks you know, far out into the future. And we've identified really three areas of technology that we want to focus on. That is AI, autonomy, and robotics. Underlying and enabling those items are a resilient network, as well as a secure data architecture. Within UTDD, specific, specifically uh, University of Texas Austin, our partnership has explored technologies in the realm of robotics, uh, reliable networks uh, with our APNT uh, CFT, a cross-functional team, as well as some biomed technology, uh, biosensing technology, and machine learning. What makes for a good partnership with AFC? What do you get out of it and what does the institution get out of it that makes it a win-win for both sides? I'm glad you say that uh, we, we both get something out of it. It's not, a, it's not true collaboration or a partnership unless both parties uh, experience some sort of win. So uh, when UTDD on behalf of Army Futures Command goes into a partnership uh, with these universities. We're looking for the best and brightest minds in academia to help us overcome the technological gaps and and, uh, capability gaps that we have identified, uh, particularly uh, in the case of UTS. uh, It'll be the the robotics as well as AI and machine learning. Um, But there's other areas. Within uh, Texas A&M, we're looking at hypervelocity, and we're looking at directed energy, as well as advanced materials. We're giving these researchers an opportunity to not only continue their research, uh, and funding them, working with them, as well as collaborating with, with them with our Army Research Lab and other scientists across the United States Army. And in return, uh, They get some uh, improved facilities. They get access to uh, some of our great minds. 
And ultimately, what we're contributing to is finding a technology or an innovation that can solve a problem for the United States Army. What does that technology problem-solving process look like? Do you take specific problems to these institutions and say, can you help us deal with this? Or do you have these broad strokes? Do they bring you specific technologies and say to you, is there a way this can help the problems that you're working on? How do, what does that all look like? It actually works in both ways. And I'll talk about the first way. Um, that is bringing the problem to our universities. Uh, we, we canvass the Army. Uh, through our cross-functional teams, uh, through our interactions with our centers of excellence, whether it be the Maneuver Center or the Fire Center. Uh, and we, we try to understand, you know, what their problem sets are. Um, Futures Concept Command also helps us, FCC also helps us in identifying these technology gaps, what our future operational environment will look like. And with this, uh, we try to align some of the studies that we intend to go after, the technologies we intend to go after, uh, in accordance with what these CFTs, the FCC, and other user communities are telling us. That's one way. The second way from the bottom up, from the universities, through their understanding of our current gaps, uh, through anticipation of baby technology trends in the future, uh, they can actually come to us and say, hey, uh, we have this particular technology that is fairly mature uh, that we are developing within our university labs that we would like to present to you, United States Army, to see if it meets a gap that you have identified for us. Uh, and we will work uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, as that linkage between the universities and our user community and the science, Army scientific community to draw out uh, these opportunities where we can collaborate to ultimately develop a, a technology or a capability that will meet a gap or a need that we have in the Army. What made these institutions a good fit and what do you look for potentially or what would you look for potentially in other good fits? I know UTA obviously is right in Austin like you are. College Station's about two hours away. Is it just geography or are there other issues that make an, uh, an institution a good fit for working with you? I think the prime, uh, the prime driver in choosing these institutions was their capability. A proven track record of excellence in the case of uh, UTA, you know, it's robotics and their network. And in the case of AM, it was the hypervelocity and directed energy. Both were, were leaders in their field. Both have within their staff and their faculty uh, researchers who are world-renowned. Uh, so for us, it, you know, as, as, a, as almost a pilot program of this type, uh, it made sense for us to, number one, look for the best, but also keep them close so that we can better interact with them uh, on a regular basis to help shape what we need and what they will provide to us. So as far as organizations, you know, elsewhere, we are, of course, looking for any technologies that would uh, support our technological gaps. Uh, we're looking for, within these various university research labs, fairly advanced and mature technologies that we can quickly transition to our warfighters through our development centers. This is very different from, you know, the traditional acquisition approach, which could take uh, very years, uh, very uh, many years. And what we're trying to do in a three to five year period is really uh, leverage these smart minds in these universities uh, 
uh, put them to task on our technological needs and put them in collaboration with our um, researchers, ultimately to uh, bring that technology faster to the warfighter. Is that ultimately the measure of success, whether some of these tech, I know they're not all going to move from the stage that they're at now to the hands of warfighters, but if at some point in the future, some of them have done so, is that how you would consider what you're doing a success, Patrick? Yes, sir. I, I would, uh, because I'll, that is what we were designed to do. Uh, whether in the acquisition community, we were, you know, our, our basic mission is to get capability, uh, you know, into the hands of our warfighters, whether we develop it ourselves, we, you know, purchase it from the commercial industry and adapt it uh, or develop it in-house. Uh, what we want to do and what we strive to do is get that technology, get that capability to our warfighters so that they are able to enhance their mission accomplishment. Patrick Bedard, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, joining you. You can read more about that program at AFC in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A brand new Daily Scoop Podcast rolls out tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.